You're immersed in it like a dream. It catches a Hollywood story that connects the golden age of Hollywood with the present day. But it's a truthful movie, and so it carries through to today. It has a lot of sadness in it and beauty and mystery and dreams. Beauty, 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 and more dreams. Those are words from David Lynch on Billy Wilder's 1950 film, Sunset Boulevard. Seeing Faces and Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film in that artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about Billy Wilder's 1950 film, Sunset Boulevard. So a brief synopsis of the film. A screenwriter develops a dangerous relationship with a faded film star determined to make a triumphant return. The film stars William Holden as Joe Gillis, Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, Eric von Stroheim as Max von Meyerling, and Nancy Olsen as Betty Schaefer. It's written by Billy Wilder, Charles Brackett, and D.M. Marshman Jr., Cinematography by John F. Seitz, edited by Arthur P. Schmidt, and music by Franz Waxman. So today's guest is my good friend, Sarah, who also co-hosts a film podcast called Talk Movie to Me, where she goes by the name of Miss Sinclair. We have known each other for a little while now, and she and I have a, a somewhat of a film club, but I think that you need to have at least <laughs> three members to make a film club. So I call it a film partnership. And it's called Bucket List. And each week we take turns picking a film that neither of us has seen. And we discuss it. And then after each round, we rank them. It's just something fun for us to do and for us to finally check off films from our bucket list of, you know, or our watch list that we've been delaying getting around to. So she's someone whose opinion on film I trust more than most. You know, we always have such great conversations about film. A lot of the time we do align, but sometimes we don't. And that's always fun. But for Sunset Boulevard, we actually saw it together on the big screen at the Fox Theater in Toronto. So we have a special place in our hearts for it. I am excited to have her on as a guest. So Sarah, thank Hi. you for joining me today. Hi, Felicia. It's so nice to see you. I feel like I haven't seen your face in a little while. I know. I've been I've hiding. Missed you. I know. We, te- we, we need text to actually all the time, but <laughs> I know. But we need to actually. I was thinking about it before we hopped on. I was like, "When's the last time we saw each other in person?" And I think is when mm-hmm. we saw the Fastbender film. Yes. So, <laughs> which feels like weeks ago. The bitter tears of Petra von Kant. So that was yeah. That was an experience. It truly was for sure. Yeah, um, I always look forward to our our movie going experiences. Yeah, and because listen, you forgot to say we've watched over a hundred films. I know. I was our, gonna our say bucket list. I know we're over a hundred. We're we're do our hundredth celebration, and we need to make it now because it's like overdue and needs to be a big thing. Yeah, it does. So it's like no driving involved. Someone else needs to be driving <laughs> us to destinations. <laughs> it's gonna be a petite mama situation yeah but maybe yeah for anyone listening (laughs) Felicia and I went to see Petite Mama the film by Celine Siama and it was supposed to be just this nice classy night where we saw this French film and acted refined and behaved and then it just ended up in complete drunken debauchery and so now we say that night can't turn into a Petite Mama (laughs) yes 
It's become where the night ended didn't match up with the film we saw at all. Absolutely not. (laughs) It was a very nice, heartwarming film about a young girl and her relationship to her mother. And all of a sudden it was like bottles of wine and vodka deep. Don't know what time we got home. Vomiting on the streets. Stumbling. Just chaotic. It just went and I feel like it was a a weekday. It wasn't a weekend either. It was a weekday. It was like a Tuesday night. (laughs) I'll never look at that film the same way. No. And when it was released by Criterion, I was like, I can taste the alcohol just reading it. But Sarah, I'd I'd love for you to tell the listeners about your own podcast as well as your relationship to cinema and Billy Wilder. Yes, I am a co-host on a film podcast called Talk Movie to Me that I do with two of my very near and dear friends. I don't think we've ever talked about Sunset Boulevard on the podcast before. So I'm really excited about this because I haven't talked about this movie for for an episode for our podcast at all. So this is really this is really special because mm-hmm. this is one of my favorite movies of all think- time. I think I recall you talking about Some Like It Hot. I talked but, about Some Like It Hot. Yeah. 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 But not Sunset Boulevard. So let's yeah, go. Yeah. Which is kind of shocking because I, yeah, I would, this is a masterpiece. This is an oh, yeah. actual masterpiece. And I first saw this movie years back. I was bartending and the head chef at the restaurant I was working at, he was really into ho- old Hollywood films and I was really into film. So we were just talking and he started kind of naming some films that he loved and wanted to know if I had seen them. And he mentioned Sunset Boulevard and he was like, you have to see Sunset Boulevard and you should also watch Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he described watching those two movies as very chaotic for him. He said he watched these films and he started just like pacing around his apartment. They just made him feel just so uneasy. And obviously I was very intrigued by that. And so I I watched both of those. I really liked Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but I fell in love with Sunset Boulevard. And it immediately became one of my favorite movies. I thought it was a masterpiece from the get-go. It incorporates everything. It has glamour. It has gothic elements. It has noir elements. It's a, a drama. It's a comedy. It's a romance. And it's also like a biting critique of Hollywood. And it manages to incorporate all these things. And at that point, I don't think I had even seen a movie that was able to do that so well. I immediately became obsessed. I went out and I bought the Polish poster of it, which is the most beautiful poster of this film. And then my computer background was Norma Desmond. Like I just was so intoxicated by this movie and by her. That's the effect of this film. And then you and I saw it at the Fox Theater. And we both walked out and we like looked at each other and we were like in shock and awe. And we were like, that's how movies should be watched. That's how these old films should be seen. Especially, you know, it's about the film industry and rewatching it. Now I've seen it quite a few times, but every single time when the credits, the end credits roll, I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. Like I got to experience something that's like insane. And it's wild to me when I'm, I'm thinking about it. It is a highly regarded film. I'm not going to say it's underrated, but Mm -hmm. it's never, I feel like, top of mind when you're talking about, like, top films. 
yeah. it's in the top, but it's never like, you know, best film. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's insane because there's not a single scene or minute that's wasted in this movie. Yeah. Even at the time, like it didn't even win best no. picture. It lo- lost no. out to all about even so many different categories. And yeah. even though it was highly regarded at the time, it didn't win those top prizes. And I think it is still a film that experiences that in a lot of ways. But for me, this is it. This is this is mm-hmm. it. Uh, and even seeing it in the Fox Theater, sitting in those red velvety chairs, that yep. theater has such an old Hollywood feeling to it. It was just so, so good. And rewatching this for this podcast the other night, still amazing. It's amazing on any screen. But after seeing it on the big screen, you're like, wow, that's yeah. <laughs> nothing can top it. No, I know. We'll get into it and we'll also get into the Oscar stuff as well because well, yeah, it's that's also an insane year for film. But yeah, really good film. Yeah. So before we get into discussing the actual aspects of the film, what I'm going to do is read the tagline because mm-hmm. it's very dramatic. And the pauses I'm going to do while I read it are not for dramatic effect. It's how it's actually written. Okay. In the tagline. <laughs> So, because they wanted the dramatic effect. So, tagline, a Hollywood story, sensational, daring, unforgettable, Sunset Boulevard. It's all those things. Right? (laughs) What I've been noticing with the the Billy Wilder taglines is just like, these are words to describe it. You need to watch it to to get the full picture, which I think is what a tagline should really do. So some facts about the making of the film, the actors involved in the production. Gloria Swanson almost considered rejecting the role of Norma Desmond after Billy Wilder requested she do a screen test for the role. Her friend, George Cougar, her friend, George Cougar is a big director. He initially recommended her for the part, told her if they want you to do 10 screen tests, do 10 screen tests. If you don't, I will personally shoot you. The Swanson agreed to audition and won the role. It, it, through my research, I've also been reading that they didn't actually ask her to do a screen test. It's more that they wanted to test the makeup on her. She heard the word testing and she assumed that they wanted her, you know, yes. to prove that she could play it, but that she want they wanted her. And I feel like that would be a good way to, even if they did want her to screen test, to mm-hmm. deal with any pushback from her and be like, oh, it's actually, it's for your makeup. You know, we yeah, want to make exactly. sure you are lit the best way that you can be. <laughs> I just love that. You know, when you've put in the work the way she did and being there from the very beginning, essentially, of cinema, I think you are afforded the right mm-hmm. to be a little bit of a diva. Yeah. So Cecil B. DeMille appears in the film on a studio set. This is actually the set of Sansom and Delilah, which DeMille was making at the time. Hmm. And all the actors that you see were actually a part of that. Hedy Lamar was an, the actress starring in that, and she was supposed to, to appear in the film, Sense of Boulevard, as just a cameo as herself. But she wanted too much money <laughs> that they couldn't <laughs> afford. So they just used Cecil, essentially, as a star. The mansion that Norma doesn't lives in was actually a real mansion. It wasn't built on the Paramount lot and it belonged to J. Paul Getty's ex-wife. They did build some extra stuff. So they built the pool, but it was not really in working condition. They just needed a pool. And that pool was actually used in Rebel Without a Cause oh, years cool. later. 
And then now they got some use out of it. Then that's good. Right. The (laughs) house was eventually torn down, but now a large office building and oil building sits there. Yeah. It's a Getty's office building, but the house is gone. Can you imagine though, if we went there and it was still there to do a tour of that house, I would do it. I want to, I've never, all the times I've been to LA, I've never done any kind of like Hollywood tours. Oh, I would do a mansion tour for sure. I know. An old Hollywood mansion. I really want to do, because I know you can see the the apartment from The Long Goodbye that's still there. And was Elliot, so Elliot was probably in that on set. So you could be so like, I just in want to touch, smell the, the same walls. space. <laughs> They were like, what's this girl doing? She's just yeah, like she's just rubbing the walls. Thinking like a wall sample. Intensely in inhaling the air. <laughs> yes. For anyone listening, <laughs> I haven't actually talked about my love of Elliot Gold yet, which is shocking. It will come up. But this is the first, I guess, mention of it. I do have a, a little bit of a love for Elliot Gold. <laughs> a little bit of an intense love. Yeah. For sure. A little bit intense. So for Joe Gillis, Montgomery Cliff was actually originally cast in this film. He had agreed to it. They were going to start production. And in the midst of them still writing the script, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore because he had just done The Heiress, which is another film that yes, the entire I can't, world to me. I can't hear The Heiress and not think of you because I know you're obsessed with that movie. I'm obsessed. And when I do the William Wyler run, because I will, because I love him, it will be first and foremost. He had just done The Heiress in that he's also a younger man in love with a bit of an older woman or it's a little different in Sunset Boulevard because she's significantly older, but mm-hmm. he decided he didn't want to do it. So Wilder chose Holden, who at the time wasn't really a big star at that point. Wasn't Montgomery Cliff like dating an older woman in real life too? And he so, didn't want it to be like a parody of his relationship with this real life older older gal. So Montgomery Cliff was very closeted. He was always paired with women. And that's how he yeah. became like besties with Liz Taylor because he was paired with her. But they never actually dated. They were just literally best friends for life. But they kind of played like mm-hmm. they were. Uh, and I'm sure he was rumored to be with other older women. But I don't think mm-hmm. he ever was out there in a relationship yeah. with a woman. I love Montgomery Cliff. And he, he's an amazing actor. And he definitely could have done this role. It just would have been different than mm-hmm. William Holden. I think they're kind of opposite type of actors. Mm-hmm. Um, I love William Holden, too. Yeah. There's, there's no complaint with his performance. This film was a hit basically right off the bat. People loved it in the first screening. They loved it. But one member of the audience was in the premiere was not very happy with the film. And that was Louis B. Mayer. He left the screen in a rage. The other movie people may have loved watching Hollywood shoot itself in the back on screen. But MGM's in-house emperor apparently took it personally, storming out of the theater. And Mayer is said to have shrieked at Wilder. You bastard. You disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tarred and in feathers and run out of Hollywood. <laughs> That's so um, extreme. It's beyond extreme. It's a but, biting satire. Like the film is biting, but it is not that extreme where you would rage out. No. <laughs> in, in any sort of capacity. No. And like he co-wrote this with two other writers. But Mayer only had an issue with Wilder. 
Mm-hmm. And it might have been also because he directed it, but it was also mm-hmm. because he was the only foreigner of the three. Yeah. And it's supposed that he was essentially telling him to go back where he came from and that he should be grateful for what America had given him. Why are you biting the hand that feeds you? Yeah. Like, and that that is always such a, a critique of directors who are critiquing Hollywood. Always. Yes. It's like you're biting the hand that feeds you. You are an active part of this world. You benefit from this world. Mm-hmm. So like, where is this cynicism coming from when it's provided you all of these wonderful things? But at the same time, I think you can still be critical. <laughs> yes. Very of much. An industry that very much has a dark side. Especially, I, I can't even say especially then because now we're in the age of in the last few episodes, I mentioned the writer strike, and now there's also the actor strike that just mm-hmm. happened. And it's just a revolt against the industry that hasn't happened in a while. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how that's going to play out. The industry yeah. has not changed. I hope he got over it at some point. <laughs> Billy Wilder, you know, carried on with his career. Oh, yeah. So it didn't really. He made, he <laughs> made so many other too films. Much. Yeah. yeah. We can get into the actual story itself. I'm trying to contain my giddiness, and I'm not a giddy person, and my excitement (laughs) about this film. Because again, rewatching it, as I said earlier on, I was like, it's insane when you can watch something and you're like, wow, this is cinema. This is cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Watching this movie after I watch it, I always get the urge to immediately just force it upon people. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm always reminded of how wonderful it is and how everyone should see it. And I get this urge to just, well, I mean, that happened to me. Like the chef, mm. at my work, he was like, you haven't seen that. You need to see that. So you get this desire to just thrust it upon others <laughs> when you see it. I 100% agree. I was trying to think when I had first watched it, when that was, and I think it was it must have been early days of film school, but for some reason it wasn't screened in class. It was one of those I just sought out on my own. And I remember the mm-hmm. exact house I was living in and I just kind of put it on, didn't really know anything about it. It just, as it does, kind of changes the way you view movies from there on out. Mm-hmm. It's just insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the film starts off with a death and mm-hmm. that's already shocking enough, not even just for the time, but in general to have your main character, the one who's narrating things, who's driving the story. It's his story, whether he's the star or not. I kind of argue that, you know, Joe Gillis is the lead character, but Norma Desmond is the star of the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But he's the lead character that's following his story right off the bat. We know he's dead, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting thing to start off with because they could have just held that off to the end. But I'm wondering how you feel about Essentially, the story is told through a narration, not throughout the film, but, you know, the beginning and the very end is told through a narration so that we kind of understand how he got there and why we're seeing this. But narration seems to be kind of a dirty tactic nowadays. People hate doing it. So I'm wondering how you Mm -hmm. feel about how it works here. Mm -hmm. I love the opening of this film. I, I and I don't always love narration, but in this film, it really, really works. And I did read that originally the beginning of this film was going to be his body 
talking to another body in a morgue and telling yeah. this other body the story of how he wound it wound up dead, which is kind of like a six feet under way yeah. of of doing it. I'm sure that would have been really interesting and it probably would have worked to a certain degree, but I like that they scrapped that because you don't really need it. There is a quality to this narration, him being dead at the beginning, that kind of gives it this like ghost story element. This film isn't a horror film, but, but there are aspects of it that you could see working in a horror film and in a ghost story. I think that it's a really interesting way of doing a narration, having this character talking to you from beyond the grave. It works too because you kind of forget throughout the film where it begins. And then when mm -hmm. you reach that moment again at the end, you're like, oh, that's right. He was dead at the beginning of the film. And the shot is so breathtaking. It's a really wonderful shot at the beginning of the film, but his face isn't completely clear. Like you, you yeah. know, it's him, but at the same time, it's not completely obvious that it's him in every single aspect of it. But you do assume that he's speaking to you from, you know, beyond the grave. And it's kind of this this ghost story element of it that I really thought was quite fascinating. No, I, I definitely agree. And it's interesting that you said the ghost story because that's how I felt and the horror elements to it, especially the shot of his body floating. So the way they did that was they shot on top of the water at the bottom of the pool, there was a mirror and they were shooting down at the mirror and to get the reflection as opposed to being inside the water looking up. So it kind of looks like you're inside the water, mm -hmm. but you're not. And as you said, even though I've seen this movie now multiple times, each time as I'm watching it, I also always forget, oh yeah, he is dead. And this mm -hmm. is all a flashback essentially. And that's just like a testament to the writing and just how well it takes you into the story that you completely forget that it does not end well for him. Because up until he does get shot, not to skip too far ahead, but he seems to be turning things around and <laughs> getting to a better place. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen, obviously. But there is a quote that I do want to read. Wilder chooses his shots to express emotions. His own as well as his characters. Looking down on his characters from an isolated perch isn't his style. Sinking to the bottom and staring up at them in disbelief is. Mm -hmm. It's such a great contrast between the character of Joe and Norma because Norma is yes. always, we're always looking up at her. She's like always mm -hmm. kind of at the top of a staircase ascending or starting with the shot of like being kind of down in the depths with him is a really good contrast to how Norma's always shot in the film. Which is a great segue because I was just about to get into Gloria Swanson and her performance. So... <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. are a lot of great quotes in this. I know I'm ready for my close-up. Mr. DeMille <laughs> is probably the biggest, but my favorite, the one that always puts like the biggest smile on my face when she says it is, I am big. It's the pictures that got small and the way yeah. she does it and like the upturned face. It's just, mm -hmm. I can't think of a better person to have said that line. Like I don't ever want to see anyone else say that line. And it's so fascinating because ultimately she is a character that we feel sympathy for. Like we feel bad mm -hmm. for Norma, but it's so wonderful 
how she's given these lines of dialogue where she has the upper hand. Like she has, it's the pictures that got small. And, you know, we didn't need dialogue. We had faces. You yes. know, she has these witty moments where she has the upper hand, <laughs> you know, you maybe it's her delusion. But at the same time, she was a huge star. She was huge. Yes. She was adored. So these moments work because she lived a life and career of being worshipped. So that doesn't just leave you. It's that stays no. with you. She sits in that for the whole film. She never loses that. And yes, some of it is her delusion, but at the same time, a lot of it isn't. She was worshipped. She is a diva. She is a star. And that's always there for real. She's just sitting around. She's not actively doing any sort of work, but she has so much money coming in still from whatever she has done to sustain her for the rest of her life. It's different if she was like, oh no, I am now broke. I now need to rethink my career, go down to another level type of thing. She's just in her mind, this is where she is. She just might not be out in the public as often. We talked about how the film is meta in the sense that a lot of Norma's life mirrors Gloria's. This character is not based on her, but when they were writing, they wanted, you know, a kind of older female silent film star who was having trouble essentially transitioning to talkies and Mm. was still well known but never made it the way others had they had thought of other actresses but then they decided to offer it to gloria very much her background mirrors norma's except at this point in her career where norma's would be she had accepted that hey, I won't be a film star anymore, so I'm going to work for radio. And Yeah, she wasn't delusional. She wasn't delusional about it. She knew. And I think that's why she works so well in this too, because she's actually quite self-aware about what's happening and what she's portraying and the ideas she's portraying. That also makes it not exploitative too. It's like an actress who is also willingly a part of this critique and understands this critique and understands who this person is. And almost a little bit, of who she could have become as well. Like her career didn't boom after this. It's not like she went on to continue being a huge star. It just was this big role and this big moment in her life. And she kind of went back to what she had been doing prior to Mm -hmm. this. But there is a funny quote that I'm going to read about when she was offered the role from Paramount. So they called her in September and September is to note because they asked her she's interested in returning to motion pictures and she naturally assumed it was for a bit part so she's like okay yeah I could probably leave my radio show for two weeks and come back the studio said it was for the lead in a picture and she gets somewhere and around like fifty thousand dollars for a 10 to 12 week shoot which is this is also 19 pre-1950 so this is a Mm -hmm. lot of money so immediately she said she could be in Hollywood by the first of the year and meanwhile (laughs) This film is being shot in September, so she wants to show up January um, <laughs> through Sunset Boulevard. She promptly divorced her fifth husband, <laughs> to whom she had been married for less than 12 months, and then flew to Hollywood right after. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's beautiful about that, too, is that Gloria got the phone call that Norma always wanted. You know, Gloria got that phone call. We're calling you to be a lead in this movie. Like, come back. 
come back to Hollywood. That's amazing. That's special. You know, that that phone call actually happened to somebody. I know. So I I keep harping on this, but every time I watch it, I I discover something new that you might not have, because it's so layered, the script and the story Mm -hmm. and there's parts of it that stick out during different watches. And for this watch, it was her, you know, waiting for that call. And being like, don't worry, they're calling. It's happening. I'm just going to sit and wait. I'll try and be patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you said, Gloria did actually get that call, which mm-hmm. is like kind of touching. And so. it is. Like, I think that in terms of Billy Wilder and this character, what makes Norma Desmond so iconic and so effective is that he really allows her to be multidimensional. In this movie, the characters are multidimensional. This woman could have been a complete caricature of a fading Hollywood star, Mm -hmm. but she isn't. She's complex. She's like this spider woman weaving this web. These men get caught in it and we get caught in it as audiences. I think that Gloria Swanson has those qualities too. Like she had so many husbands and she was (laughs) worshipped and adored for so long in Hollywood. And she really brings that. Billy Wilder didn't just have this this character just be one dimensional and you know fluffy and he allows us to have such deep empathy for her and also experience how intoxicating this character is because it wouldn't work otherwise you have to believe that joe gillis is is going to stay with her and it's not yes. just for money even just for money someone would leave they would they yeah. would if this person was completely completely unhinged and had no redeeming qualities he doesn't he stays with her because there is a intoxicating quality she managed to captivate audiences and when you watch Norma Desmond as an audience member you just want to see more of her she doesn't yes. push you away she sucks you in and that's exactly what happens to the people that encounter her in this film they get sucked into her because she actually is glamorous she's not Very some nice. old egg living in this mansion she's a star she's beautiful and she's cultured and she he even says She taught me what wine to pair with fish. She throws parties for him. They go out shopping. She teaches him about this high life. And she's also fun in parts of this film. Let's dance, darling. Let's drink. Let's watch this movie. Let's do this. Let's go out in the car. Let's drive, you know, Max, drive us around and you need to wear this. And and there is something that anyone could get caught up in. So to have a character be just one dimensional wouldn't work. So I like the fact that Billy Wilder allows for a lot of these female characters that he has in his film be multifaceted. It's funny that you mentioned that because in the Ace in the Hole episode I did, it was brought up that some people view Wilder's depictions of women as misogynistic, which I think is in my opinion, false, I think, because he's so interested in women as real human beings mm-hmm. and showing that that they might not be the most pretty, you know, personality wise because mm. they're real people and that you weren't used to seeing that then. And sometimes even now, like if you see an ugly character, if we're going to pair it with like 
something more modern, like Tar. That's all that was talked about, that she was like a pile of trash person. Right. But it's right. like, there are just people who are like that. Yeah. It's not like she's special for that reason. That's just her being a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even in the apartment, I was yes. so surprised where the Shirley MacLaine character went. Yeah. You know, it goes quite dark and quite deep and touches on all these really uncomfortable issues in this movie that I thought was going to be a comedy. And, you know, Some Like It Hot does it the same. I really love Marilyn Monroe in in Some Like It Hot. I think the only time Mm -hmm. watching one of his films where it hasn't fully worked with for me was Seven Year Itch. That one didn't fully work with me. I think that one could really be critiqued in terms of like the female character. In terms of Sunset Boulevard, there I don't feel there's anything misogynistic about Norma or how she's Not portrayed. I think she's portrayed with deep empathy and respect throughout the film. Very much. Uh, I was had been thinking about it as I was watching it again and being like, if the roles had been reversed and this is like a washed up male actor, chances are he would be a very bitter, you know, alcoholic, yeah, you know, raging all the time. And not that he had to soften it up because it's a woman. It's more so she's very self-aware, but she's also, as you said, delusional. But she is she does have some self-awareness. The core of this film is Norma Desmond. Everything spawned from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be different if we were seeing if from her perspective, it would be a completely different movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of do like that we're seeing her from the outside because that's how she wants to be watched. She wants to be watched as opposed to us understanding her inside because yeah. she has a lot of darkness. But like there is a scene that I love where she and Joe are watching a scene from her old film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the camera lights flickering on her as she like rises up and, you know, <laughs> yeah. announces her her return, not her comeback, yeah. but her return. Her return. She hates and, the word comeback. <laughs> and honestly, I feel that it's it's the kind of a dirty <laughs> word, but it, it ties it in again with the meta stuff because it's actually a film yeah. like Glorious starting called Queen Kelly, which was directed right. by Eric Von Strong. also in the films it's like layers and layers what you were saying about you know her being multi-dimensional and just letting gloria also just do her thing and there's a scene where norma starts performing for joe when she feels he's getting bored Mm because she wants to entertain him and you see the physical performance she puts on and she does the famous scene of playing the chaplain character the tramp Mm -hmm. and it's just so well done to see that physical performance from her and it's a nice kind of relief from how tense a lot of the film can be Mm -hmm. and you see a fun playful side of her and it doesn't feel like forced to be like oh we need to make her likable it's like no she is a likable person she's likable even when she's not being likable yeah she's just likable that's you want to see her as a diva you want to see her being fun you want to see her being sad you want to see her being unhinged you just want to watch her Mm -hmm. you just want more of her like even when he leaves her to go to the other new year's party you want him to go back you don't want to leave norma i don't want to go to Artie's party i don't care about betty i don't i don't care about betty i don't care about Artie. i want him to go back to you want to stay in that mansion for some strange reason like you're caught up in it too 
very much. I it has nothing to do with either with Nancy Olson, but because her character is supposed to kind of just be there. She's basically the savior character, but no one's supposed to actually care about her. But yeah, tying it into that party scene and William Holden, I I love him. So maybe I'm biased. I think he's a great actor. But I think the scene where he calls her or the house to get his belongings and Max Mm -hmm. tells him there's been an accident, you know, she's cut her wrist. There's a look on his face. You can sense that he's very empathetic towards her. He's formed a bond. Mm-hmm. And when he does go back. It might be um, Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know. but I mean, It might <laughs> also be that. It might also be that. But he just, but he does it so totally. well. Yeah. I need to say one hilarious moment <laughs> from this New Year's scene where I crack up. It's he comes into the party and he takes off his coat and he like just puts it into the shelf why would he do that and then when he gets the phone call about norma he's like i gotta go and like he he runs out and like grabs his crumpled up coat that's in somebody's bookshelf like that's like me going over to your place and like taking my coat off and like shoving it in your bookshelf instead of hanging it up i noticed that too and i was like sir you could have just you could have thrown it on the couch. You could Anywhere breathe it over else. your arm. But the way he shoves it, it's because I guess he's he's obviously embarrassed by it because he's around his older friends who are all struggling artists. Right. Yeah. He and just, he's, he's in this like, and- I'm like, why is that the first spot? <laughs> That's the only exploit or tuck it under your arm or something. Yeah. Like, it's like, we've already seen you wear it. So why are we shoving it? And like, yeah, as you said, <laughs> when he gets the call and he runs away as she's explaining what the beverages are, it's just both. Yeah. He just like grabs it and goes. It's just it's so silly. It's, it's so silly. And it's that's what I love about like the comedy in this movie. Cause even when mm. something serious is going on, you know, like Norma has harmed herself, you still have that comedic relief of him grabbing his crumpled ass coat out of <laughs> his friend's bookshelf. Oh. But <laughs> like as you said, he does contrast like very dark scenes with a kind of not full-blown comedy but there's like undertones of it because right after he consoles her and they have their first kiss then the very next scene is a pool scene he's jumping out of the pool all wet half naked in his little shorts you know he's obviously now a kept boy (laughs) and i say boy not a kept man He he becomes very boyish and she's like, let me dry you down. And she's like patting him down and mm. talking about all these things that they're going to do. And she's going to buy him. And it's like that shift. And there is a look on his face where he's like, oh, God. But he doesn't mind it. I think he's accepted the fact that, yes, she might be intense. She's a lot. But she's not a bad person. And I'm not going to get any better than this. I'm living well, rent free and writing. I think what makes the dynamic work to the point where you actually watch this and and you think, you know what? I can actually see them working as a couple because yes. he is technically the protagonist of this film, but not really because he exactly. is not a good person either. Mm-hmm. And he's a bit of a heel. He, he is not great, Joe. He is greedy and he yep. is ambitious to a fault and he is like a clout chaser like he is deal like acting on his bad intentions as as well and so there's something kind of oh kind of like lady macbeth and macbeth ish about these two Mm -hmm. where they probably could take on hollywood you know to a certain degree as a couple but i think that that's what makes this movie work in the sense that it's not just one person being victimized 
everybody yes. is morally questionable in this. Every character is. Max is. Joe yeah. definitely is. Norma is. Betty is. Betty's like going after her fiance's best friend. She has no problem spending time with him late at night, writing a script, kissing. Like, you know, Betty's also questionable. So I think that that allows us to not just be watching one person just being taken advantage of by this like villainous woman. These are two people that are using each other. Joe has agency. He does. He's not being com- he's not being completely victimized in this situation at all. And oh, no. that's yeah. what is the brilliance of this and balances it. It's just it's shown in the way he talks to her, even when they first meet. He kind of gauges her personality and he actively acknowledges that he knows who she is. But he kind of talks to her as though he's better than her, despite mm-hmm. the fact that he really has nothing to show for that. Mm-hmm. But because in his mind, oh, she's an older, washed up woman and I'm up and coming. So I'm better than her. I'm in a better position. Mm-hmm. But then realizes he's really not. Um, yeah. But as you said, also, Betty is also a user because mm-hmm. she's using him because he has a little bit more agency in the industry in terms yeah. of being a screenwriter than she does. She's like, I want you to help me write this idea that yeah. I took from you. And also you. he's a man and it's hard as a woman too. Yes. You know, yes. so if they team up and stuff, like she's also trying to yeah. get ahead whatever way she needs to. And she's using him in a way that I I also like I fully endorse. I also would do the same yeah. thing. <laughs> like I, I'm not even like hating on Betty. I'm like, good for you. Do your thing. And I think Mag yeah. is too, you know, mm-hmm. he probably likes his cushy life with her. There and he he was her director, but there really was no him without her. And mm-hmm. that translates into their life. They were married before. Who is he without her? Like, I think he enables her because he needs to stay with her in her life in some capacity, if not as her husband, as her butler. We don't know how long he's been her butler. If it was Mm -hmm. directly after they were married, the reveal that when he says, I was the first husband, Mm -hmm. that always like, it shocks me every time the way it's said, because like the look on both their faces. And in a way he probably feels he has some sort of agency on her life because he's making her feel a certain way you know he's writing the letters and he's taking control of the way her emotions are managed in a sense being but max isn't a very interesting character and if we want to talk about eric von stroheim one i just love when directors are also actors but especially Mm -hmm. actors in other people's films so in this film we have stroheim and cecil b demille but like there's other actors who do that as well, like Victoria De Sica, Sidney Pollock, so many people who've done it. It's interesting with this character because it's not that it's necessarily doesn't mirror his real life. I'm sure obviously he wasn't someone's butler, but he was a director <laughs> in the silent film era. And he mm-hmm. didn't do much directing post that era, but he did a lot of acting, you know, to stay in the industry. And he kind of just said yes to anything and mm-hmm. anyone who offered him anything. So that does mirror Max and just being like, I need to be a part of this world in any sort of capacity. 
I also just, I love that he was salty about doing this role. Like he didn't want to do it. He just had to do it for the money and to just be in the industry. He didn't like the fact that he was doing a version of himself pretty much in this. And the fact that it wasn't even just a washed up, washed up director was this director that then was a butler. Like he's playing a butler in this movie as well. And it is such a shame because it's a a great character. It's an interesting character. And you know, it's not the lead character, but at the same time, you still wonder what is Max's full story? Like, I actually was wondering, would Joe have become just another Max or another ex-husband? Or has Max been there for her other husbands? Has he been the butler for all her other husbands after him? Makes you think about that. That's what I also wondered. And I'm like, that's, that's another level of, you know, devotion. If they got divorced and then how did, what was that conversation? But can I still live here type of thing? Cause he obviously has some attachment to her. They did not need to expand on this character of Max, but the Mm -hmm. fact that they did and make him so beyond layered because he's in the film a lot. He is really in like a lot of the scenes. And there's also the thing, because he was nominated for the Oscar as well for best supporting and he was pissed off. Yeah, he he got salty. He was like, I should be best actor. And I was like, well, you are in a lot of the film, but you are not the lead. Come on, come on. like, sir, take the nomination for best supporting. (laughs) Just take it. Because it's such a great role. Like I, I would definitely. I just watch, love like, the egos from the yeah. egos from this era are just yeah. they're so unreal. It's so great. It, it's funny because I think the technical lead of the film, William Holden, was the most chill about it. His relationship with his wife is pretty famous because she was always so blunt. He was shocked to have been nominated for the Oscar, and he obviously he lost to I think at that year was Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Belchac. But his wife was like, no, he, Jose was a lot better. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> I was like, wow. Can wait a day. Well, I mean, Just you need someone to up. tell you the truth. No, yes. no one was telling Norma the truth. And no, you know, we know so, what happens at the end. You, exactly. need, you need honest people in your life. You know, Norma, everyone was mm-hmm. enabling Norma. Before we get to the ending part, there's a couple things I do want to talk about because you were talking about how glamorous this film is. And I, mm-hmm. down to the clothing, the set pieces, even just the decorations on the wall, I find that it's so Hollywood, but it's so grim at the same time. And it's like a yeah. lavishly grim. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, as you said, very gothic and very horror-like, but also like one room in her house costs more than any place that either of us live in. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like a testament to her being stuck in a time mm-hmm. that's very different than where she is now. Yeah. The mansion is her. It's like representative representative yes. of her because the mansion is not fully dilapidated. There are parts mm-hmm. of it that are, and then other parts that are pristine and gorgeous and kept well. And that is also... Norma. There are parts of her that have aged and then other parts that are still so glamorous. And that is the mansion. And it works because when Joe goes to this this home, he looks at it and he doesn't turn away. And yes, he is looking Mm -hmm. for a garage, but at the same time, he parks, but then goes in. And as audiences, you go, I also want to go in. I also want to explore because it isn't crazy. It isn't creepy. Like, it's not completely creepy. 
it's not like when you watch a horror movie and you see a character and you're like, don't go in there, dude. What? Yeah. You, what? <laughs> Turn away. This house, you look at it and you're like, ooh, let's go in there. Like, I want to know. Oh, yeah. You know, Very oh, much. who's this woman looking at me from up above? <laughs> like, why well, should turn away? But you're like, no, I right? think you should keep going, Joe. And that's because he, so brilliant. Yeah, he could have just parked his car and be like, okay, I like his narration is like, I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to Ohio. I will, you know, send a postcard to the repo man mm-hmm. to where to find the car. Chances are Max would have called to have the car yeah. taken away anyway. But this way he could have just gotten away. You know, he's looking over and as you said, he's intrigued by it. Even when she's telling him, I think her first line is like, why have you kept me waiting for so long? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we haven't even touched upon the monkey. I know. <laughs> and and also, I just, I love that Norma Desmond, if she's, if someone ends up on her property, she immediately thinks they work for her. She's just like, yes. hey, you, you're here for this job because everybody who shows up here works for me. <laughs> yeah. Get to work. And, and she's just going into, so she invites him in, or not even invites him, she summons him in she, to come summoned. in. And then and he he's, obliges. He's like, all right, I guess let's see what's going on here. And even when he realizes, okay, there's someone who's dead that she wants to, me to take care of, he still stays there for a while. And he mm-hmm. sees the monkey's arm, he's <laughs> mm-hmm. passed away, unfortunately, RIP. <laughs> he still is just like, okay. I still need to fully understand what's going on here. And they have a weird flirtation. And I say that because she's annoyed and she kicks him out. But then she says, wait a minute, come back. You said you were a writer. What have you worked on? I'm writing. I'm working on something. And he's playing the game with her too. I'm real. Mm -hmm. I'm really busy. I'm, I'm this, I'm, you Mm -hmm. know. I don't know if I have time for this and you don't have time for, but you know, that's that kind of thing where they're both playing the game. They're both familiar with how Hollywood works and what you have to do. And I love when he's like, oh, I'm kind of expensive. She's like, don't worry about the money. (laughs) She's like, I don't even care. Money does not affect me in any sort of way because it's always yeah. there. It's always coming in. I'm never worried about it. It's And it's also a, a bit of a challenge too. Like I'm really expensive knowing that someone's going to be like, name your price. Come on. Right? I have a pet monkey that I've just <laughs> yeah, bought exactly. a coffee for. Look at this place. Look at these tops. Yes. I wanted to like ask you about, because I rewatched this and then for the first time I watched Ace in the Hole because I hadn't seen that. Mm-hmm. And I text you right after and I was just like, that was really bleak. Yeah. Great film. Really bleak. And his partnership with his longtime screenwriter. Mm -hmm. Brackett. um, Yeah. Charles Brackett ended after this movie. And I wonder, because I always find Billy Wilder films to have such deep cynicism running through them. Sunset Boulevard manages to balance the comedy and the bleakness and the cynicism really well. And because Mm -hmm. they wanted this film to be a comedy, like just a straight comedy. And then Billy Wilder was like, I need, I want this to be bleak. This is bleak and biting and sardonic. I'm wondering if when that partnership broke up, he just kind of went like full, I'm going to be as bleak and cynical as I want with like Ace in the Hole. Yes. Because I found it was, I didn't, I loved it, the film, but like it wasn't balanced in the way that this was. No. I found it was quite. No. Bracket for this film wanted a more light uh, humored comedy and Wilder wanted the bleaker as the sardonic tone. And they fought about it a lot to the point where they decided there was two things to it. One, they basically decided they wanted, they were going to take a break from each other 
afterwards anyway. And then Paramount also said they could no longer, after how successful this was, they could mm-hmm. no longer afford them together. So they've essentially broke them up. But Bracket is what kept Wilder from being as dark as Yeah, like, like going over the edge with it, yeah. He had now under his belt Sunset Boulevard and he had won Best Director and so on for Lost Weekend the year before that and the year before that's Double Indemnity. So it's like hit after hit. He had so much freedom and he's like, okay, cool. I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to put something out super dark. Yeah. Ace in the Hole ended up being a flop at the time. Mm. People hated it. Now it's like obviously widely regarded Mm. as things are the way, you know, a partnership, whether you fight or not, sometimes you do need someone to balance yourself out in any sort of relationship, whether it's a writing or a romantic friendship Mm -hmm. and so on. What a like swan song mm-hmm. for them you to, know? End. to end their creative partnership to end on this note is like a it's just such a masterpiece for anyone to have this film in their filmography. You could just make this and be like, okay, cool. I'm retiring for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm yeah. good now. And I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will say, if we want to get into like the look of the film, this is shot in LA. It's a Hollywood film. Most of us, at least people who don't live in LA, we all think of LA as being super sunny. This film is not sunny. There's a couple of scenes that are, but most of it's pretty gray. They were looking for that specifically. They're And to quote, the film may have been under the cruel sun of Hollywood, but both Wilder and Seitz, who was the cinematographer, preferred more gray uh, Mm -hmm. than Southern California's shy tended to provide. So they Mm -hmm. just wanted the story to reflect how gray the industry can be. Mm -hmm. It's not always sunny and it's not always dark. It's not like it was a dark film, like Double Indemnity is a bit darker Mm -hmm. visually. But this is just kind of like that gray undertone of being like, things are bad, but it's also like, hey, we are in the entertainment industry. So things are not as bad as they could be for other people. Yeah. It's still just just the movies. (laughs) One last thing, because I'm going to hate myself if I forget. And I always forget that he's in this every time and until he shows up is Buster Keaton. Well, yeah. Isn't that, that's just so cool, but also sad. I know, right? The very first time, I, I think, I'm trying to think. It might have been around the same time. I also saw Limelight for the first time. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. It's a Charlie Chaplin Mm -mm. film. It's one of his, I think it might be his very last film. And it's the speaking film. And Buster Keaton's also in it. And they're both just so sad. Yeah. Because it's at the end of their careers, their lives, essentially. Gloria Swanson looks so amazing. And she's still so beautiful and so glamorous. And then when you do see Buster Keaton, he does really look weathered and sad. And like, I mean... you know, we obviously knew what the part was, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. at the same time, it it's meta and it's a, a meta moment where you kind of go, oh, it like hits you a bit like a ton of bricks. All the other actors who are playing bridge with her, they're also silent film actors. That yeah, they she, call them the wax, the wax works. The wax works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of them that she had starred, Gloria, I should say, had started mm-hmm. in a film with before. So these are all her her actual friends from that day. And some of them obviously predating her a bit, like Buster mm-hmm. Keaton, who we always just imagine. Like he had that really boyish look and then you see him in this film and he's like, yeah. oh, he's so much older. And he probably wasn't even that old. It's just like industry wearing on him, alcohol yeah. wearing on him. But I do love his appearance because it kind of takes you out of the element mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, because he's playing himself. They don't actually mm-hmm. specifically say it's Buster Keaton, but mm-hmm. he's playing himself. I love that. Yeah. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
same. Uh, in case you guys <laughs> don't realize, that is why I do love this movie. Uh, just a little bit. Those are kind of my notes on the film because I could talk hours, but I'm trying to be a responsible I person. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to specifically touch on. I just love the just those subtle moments that you might not see the first time you watch it and every time you, there's little yes. things like this time I really noticed when she was in the the Paramount studio and she's sitting there you know obviously they're filming a talking film and the microphone like slides over to her mm-hmm. and like right by her head she just looks at it with such disdain and kind of like bats it away. But it's just one of those really funny moments where this microphone, this 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 object that she's not familiar with as the silent film star, just like creeping towards her head. And that was something I noticed in this this last watch that I didn't pick up on before. So it's these little moments that there's a new one you discover every time you watch the film. I honestly hadn't even picked up on that. Yeah, um, just like... It just kind of slowly like creeps yeah. by her head and she's just looking at this microphone <laughs> like you ruined my career. Yeah, that's a great point. And I do now recall that scene. And as you said, and we both mentioned each time you watch it, you pick up on something different or it's just that, you know, the story. So you're focusing on different elements that are interesting to you at the time. And mm-hmm. that's just why it makes it such a rewatchable film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At this rate, I've probably seen it maybe almost once a year. <laughs> and it never gets old. Like, yeah. I just love it. And I think that we will see it again in the theater. Like if it, yeah, we'd be like, I guess we're going again. <laughs> yeah. I would hundred percent not hesitate. Like, yeah, I'll see yeah. Sunset Boulevard every single year. That was Sunset Boulevard to the best of our ability. I, I mean, no one can gears. ever really do it justice. No, truly, you can't. But no. I mean, that's why it should <laughs> never be remade. It's just like, you guys can make films about the industry, but just don't remake this specific story. Yeah. I don't even want to think about who could who would try and do that. Oh my God. I know I it's know. been a and stage they, play. It's, but... Yeah, with Glenn Close, yeah. which I can definitely see um, mm-hmm. for sure. Like, I would definitely watch it as a stage play. I think that would be stage fun. Play, as yes. long as they don't try to redo this as a film. No. No. <laughs> I'll accept the stage play. I'm going to switch gears to the last segment of the show. It's called mm-hmm. End Credits. Two questions that I ask every single guest, the same questions. First mm-hmm. is, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, Sarah, I have never seen a Billy Wilder film in my life. Where should I start? Are you going to recommend Sunset Boulevard? If so, why? If not, what other film of his would you recommend? I would pick Sunset Boulevard 100%. Like, I couldn't not because this is not only my favorite Billy Wilder, it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, there there just wouldn't be another number one. But at, at the same time, if I had to have like a second runner up on where to start, I feel like I feel like people could start with some like it hot. I don't think it's the yeah. it's not like this in terms of where Sunset Boulevard really incorporates, I think, all of his strengths as a director. This has a little bit of everything. I think that some like it hot would also be, even though it is a bit later in the filmography, I feel like it also would be a good intro film. Like I wouldn't start with Ace in the Hole necessarily. No, (laughs) That would be like a harder one to start with. I would say either Sunset Boulevard or like an an easier one, like some like it hot, which is just so charming and endearing and could even be an introduction to like Marilyn Monroe as as well. Probably that, but Sunset Boulevard is, it is the one. It's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I talk as as I said, I ask everyone this question. So 
I've also given my answer in the previous episodes and it's always been Sunset Boulevard. And like yeah. everything you said about it is exactly what I was going to say. So I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. You've already said it. But I do want to actually quickly ask you before we get into the second one, is this the first Billy Wilder film you did see? It is. This was. Oh, it yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this is actually what got me into watching more of his films. And I still, Mm -hmm. there's still a bunch that I need to see. But um, over the years, I've slowly like really like gone through his filmography. But this was definitely the one that was the first one that I watched. I I always associate this movie with you now. Also because we saw it, but like when I said to you that I was doing a Billy Wilder month, I was like, I'm gonna let you pick, but I essentially have already assigned (laughs) Boulevard (laughs) to you. You'd be shocked if you pick something else. We both agree it's Sunset Boulevard. So second question is a double bill. So if you're going to create a double bill either for yourself, someone else, what film would you pair this with? It doesn't have to be another Billy Wilder film. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Okay, I have like a li- I have a, a a couple and by a couple. Don't worry, because I, I also have I also have. So um, well, I think for me, I I watch Sunset Boulevard and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane really close. Mm together and i i do feel like those two films work together i also think that straight jacket might be fun with this oh, one nice. if you just want to have a double bill of just divas being unhinged <laughs> straight jacket would also be a really good choice and then if you wanted to pair it with something newer i think it would be interesting to watch with Babylon, because I think Babylon is an example of how something goes too cynical and like too audacious and doesn't have the balance of really the charm and the glamour. It it just, it, it kind of pushes you away where Sunset Boulevard sucks you in at the same time while critiquing. So there's a really interesting study there of how two directors handled critique of Hollywood. And also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could work. But another one that I think is a really good double bill is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool with Annette Bening, where she's playing the aging film star in a relationship with a younger man, uh, Jamie Bell. I don't know this one. Yeah, that one would work really well. It, it doesn't have really the critique or the cynicism, but it is a love story between a beautiful, older Hollywood actress um, mm-hmm. and a younger man. Bullets over Broadway might work, yeah. too. Yeah. And then also my last one, I won't say any more. Um, <laughs> great Expectations, because there is a Great Expectation reference in Sunset mm. Boulevard, where the house is being compared to the the decrepit mansion in, in yes. Great Expectations. I mean, the one with Anne Bancroft. I was going to ask. Yeah. 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 Those are all great. This is, I recently did a month that was focused on showbiz movies. There's just so many Mm -hmm. and to different degrees and certain people handle it, you know, better than others. I haven't seen Babylon yet. Oh, I can't wait until you watch it. I, I, I really, it'll be like 10 years down line, but. Sometimes when critiquing an industry, occasionally it requires you to have been in it long enough to have more to say. And maybe I think but, why yeah. it maybe not have resonated is because he's kind of newer. Sometimes yes, that and, can work also. And also like got success so young and has only had mm-hmm. success. So you're kind success. of like, yo, dude, why are you so cynical? Yeah. Already. 
Yes. <laughs> you know, you're still I want Sevier so Dana to do one. Yes. Oh, yeah. He, especially now with yeah. him saying he's retiring, I want his comeback to be just slamming the film industry. His return. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he needs to star in it, of course. The ones that I paired with, I already talked about it actually accidentally, but my first one was Limelight, the Charlie Chaplin, mm-hmm. because it's again, it's now it's him essentially kind of playing a version of himself at the end of his career, mm-hmm. still trying to keep up with what he knows best, but knowing that he's aged out of people don't really mm-hmm. care about him. And you have Buster Keaton as well in that film. And the first time I saw that was when Tiff Bell Lightbox just opened up. And I was young enough. And I say that only because back when I was younger, I never used to cry at movies. And that might have been the first one that I publicly cried Mm. at. I was like sobbing. It was really disgusting. (laughs) And I got up and like you looked around, everyone had been crying. I love that movie. Mm. But it's very sad. It's very, very sad. A couple others that I thought of were... A film called I Knew Her Well. It's an Italian film by mm. Antonio Pietrangeli, which I definitely butchered his last name. <laughs> it's about a young girl who's trying to get into the industry and just how dark it gets and like the things she needs to put herself through. So that was the other mm. one. And then if you wanted to pair it with something lighter, <laughs> Singing in the Rain, I think yeah. would be a good because it's the same the transition between the silent film and to talkies, but there's music and it's in color and it's fun. So you could either start with that. You could end with it, depending on what kind of mood you're going for, but it's just such a great thing to talk about. You could even um, pair it with like all about Eve. And then you could decide which one should have won that year. So we didn't actually talk about that, but (laughs) quickly talk about it. So that was like a big thing. When I looked back to see what else was nominated, it's a huge year for especially the actress care category and best picture. I love All About Eve. I love Betty Davis. So mm-hmm. I would not have been mad. But I also love Judy Holiday, And mm-hmm. I love her in that role. And I kind of love that she won. Every time I do watch Sunset Boulevard, it does kind of hurt me that right. she didn't win. And then it's not like her career got any better after that. Judy Holiday mm-hmm. went on. To continue her career she's not as big as betty davis obviously betty davis was not affected by it by any in any right. sense she's already won she had one after that but she's also betty davis you know out of the three right. names everyone knows betty davis probably the most so it's interesting to see and maybe it's just me being cynical about newer films <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's been a long time where you get a category where you're like i have no idea who's gonna win i think maybe this past year was kind of like that but mm-hmm. in other years where it's like, okay, we already know this person's winning. There's a clear winner. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, Sarah, <laughs> thank you so much for talking Billy Wilder with me and talking Sunset Boulevard. Thank you for talking with me. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about Sunset Boulevard any time of day. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. Intro music by Lamar Walker and additional help from Darren McGrath. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. While you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Stay tuned for our next director in focus, which is Agnes Farda. <laughs>